Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, you know that film you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did? Well, I call those black hole films, and this podcast is all about checking those films off our list and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter, at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate and review it, leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening to it. It really does make a difference to helping more ears tuning in. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 79. So this is another special anthology episode where I am all by myself. Uh, I was at the Toronto International Film Festival this year, and um, the new A Star is Born was playing. And I was about to go see it, and then I realized I have not seen any of the other versions of this film. And I thought, wouldn't that be a fun, interesting deep dive to go back and rewatch the three previous versions uh, before I dove into the new one? And, uh, and what really solidified that was uh, I was watching a movie with a friend of the podcast, Norm Wilner, uh, and he showed me this really great uh, tweet from actress Zoe Kazan talking about uh, A Star is Born and the overall legacy. And uh, I'm just going to read it verbatim. She says, I don't feel comfortable moving to the other side of the critical table, but... I truly would enjoy writing a comparison to the sexual politics messaging of the Garland, Streisand, Gaga stars are born. Fascinating to me that the women in these movies are always played by such an insanely famous person or singer. Curious how the story would read if the fame of that character felt less inevitable, coded by the casting. Having seen every version of this story to date, I'm struck by how different the narrative is for each one, what they are each saying about fame, men, women, partnership, creativity, ego, etc., one vehicle repurposed through repetition to say something new and of its time. Just to be clear, I have thoroughly enjoyed every version of the story. I find the construct heartbreaking in every version and fascinated by what DNA they all share and crucially don't share and what seems to be a product of each specific time. Anyway, that, that made me really fascinated to want to go back and revisit it, knowing that each story is really of its era. So I'm excited to do that. Although it doesn't seem to me like she's referencing the original original, which is the 1937 uh, version, which stars Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. So I am going to start with that, even though it doesn't seem like Zoe Kazan did. So at any rate, uh, strap in, because we're about to talk about four different versions of the same film. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, so I just finished watching the 1937 version of A Star is Born, which I believe is the original. Um, please let me know if I am wrong and I've missed a version. Uh, so in this version, which I think is different from the, the other ones, she's just an actress, not a singer. So I think that is what is unique about this version, although I'll know better when I dive into the other films. Uh, I really like the the idea of showing a screenplay off the top uh, to really reinforce the theme of movies, but it's also a really interesting choice uh, to kind of tear behind the facade and let the audience know that what they're watching is artificial, that it's a construct, that it's not real, even though they're trying to tell what of the era feels like a really gritty 
not gritty, gritty is the wrong word, but kind of a grounded version of, 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 of a movie like this. I love the grandma. I love the grandma character. She's that, she's that person every artist needs and wants in their life. She has this great quote near the beginning of a film that says, everyone who has ever dreamed about doing better things has been laughed at. And that's certainly true. Uh, you know, everyone is told at some point that what they want to achieve is too hard or too difficult and that they should just go home. And certainly uh, Janet Gaynor's character, is, uh, Gaynor's character is told that a lot throughout the film. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of great stuff. There's a great sign showing how many extras there are in Hollywood and that there's 16 times more than they're ever needed on one given day. Uh, if nothing else, what this does nicely is foreshadow an ending that's not necessarily typical for this time in cinema. Um, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the ending of this film. So if, uh, and the ending of all the films. So if, uh, if you haven't seen any of these films either and you want to preserve any spoilers, don't listen to this episode. Uh, I mean, that's generally true for most of my episodes of the podcast, but uh, this one is no exception. I love little details that come up throughout this film. There's this, um, in the for rent sign, or, or the, the the personal ad she sees, not the personal ad, but the ad she sees that lets her know of a place she can stay, there's a little thing that says, no cowboys. <laughs> so I love that there's some kind of reputation in Hollywood for cowboys, and uh, they are not to be rented to. So we get the intro to Norman Maine, who is the love interest and who is the uh, the alcoholic uh, once massive star in Hollywood who is now fallen into kind of the later half of his career. You know, he's introduced as a lovable drunk and the tone of the film is really interesting. They set this up as if it's almost going to be a rom-com and his alcohol is, alcoholism is treated pretty casually at first. The Hollywood Bull is fun to see, uh, and that's where we get to meet him in his, his, all of his drunken splendor. I really love, uh, I mean, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but, uh, but I'm, I'm going to talk about kind of details and little, little moments I really enjoyed first, and then I'll get into kind of my broad feelings on the film in general. I love the scene where she, uh, they, they workshop her stage name and end up on Vicky Lester. You know, I think all these really behind-the-scene curtains of, of Hollywood must have been such a thrill for people of that era. You know, I mean, we live in an era where we've got, you know, countless tabloids and all this behind the scenes stuff we get to see all the time. You know, the show Entourage, just everything really pulled back the curtain. But in 1937, this must have been a real thrill for the audience, you know, because all of this stuff is second nature second nature now and, and we all know it. But I think at, at the time, this one such a quite a treat to see how the sausage is made in Hollywood, because I don't think there was anything quite like this before. Uh, you know, the closest I can think of is Sullivan's Travel, uh, and and I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. You know, like like just like details, like seeing the the test screening uh, of the film they're doing, the mailing in the the comment cards is is cute. You know, stuff like. Uh, Again, I'll get into this more later, but the you know the business side of their romance and relationship juxtaposed with the business side and, and formulating a press release about them spontaneously eloping. Uh, it's cute. I think it's the eighth Academy Awards they attend, which is which is fun and interesting to see. And it almost feels like were they trying to promote the Academy Awards at that point? I don't think they would have been televised. Obviously, they wouldn't have been televised. There was no TV then. Um, so uh, it's interesting to see its its humble beginnings, knowing what it what it is now, as it enters. Uh, God, is it the seventieth 
or more. I'm, I'm not even going to look that up. Uh, I don't know what year the Academy Awards is this year, how many times they've been doing it, but it's a lot. I would have liked to see her her friend who was the assistant director throw up more. Uh, I think uh, he was so important in the beginning of the film, and then we just kind of get him again at the end after after her husband dies, that it just felt like a shame. It felt like he deserved a little bit more, especially given that it was really due to him that she, she ended up where she was. Uh, same as her grandmother. would have loved her grandmother to be involved more throughout. I love that she came and stayed with her at the end. Uh, it would have been nice to be have her as a, as a constant death throughout the movie. So overall, I mean, f- for the time, it feels like a pretty gritty film, even though it's got all the production value and design of the films of the day. It feels grounded in comparison, which, you know, I realize is a bit laughable when you compare it to other films, especially modern films. You know, the closest thing, as I mentioned, that I can think of is the realness of Sullivan's Travels, which is one of my favorite old Hollywood films. And if you haven't seen Sullivan's Travels, oh my God, go check it out. And uh, I did an episode of the podcast with Tommy Amber Peary that talks about that film. So cast, let's talk about Janet Gaynor. She's really remarkable in this. She gets to show her chops as an actress, even in that scene where she's being a waitress and trying to get people's attention. And I love that she doesn't really get anyone's attention until uh, she becomes herself in that scene in the kitchen, which is, which is their meet-cute, uh, where she meets her future husband and the guy that kind of gives her her career. You know, I like that she helps him out, and they're able to connect on a human level. It's really, really nice. That said, Frederick March, who plays the love interest, is kind of bland. You know, I got to say that the one downside to this movie is that their relationship just, I don't feel like this really intense connection, uh, which is a shame. Uh, You know, I liked, you know, I love that we know where we get a sense that the relationship is doomed essentially from the start. Or maybe we don't get a sense of it. I mean, maybe I just knew that because I know I know the, the tropes of this story. Um, but, I, I mean, the general big problem I have with this is it feels like for the most of the movie, they're kind of playing house. You know, I, I don't really get a sense that they're really in love with each other or that their feelings are these deep, intense feelings that we want them to have. You know, because even as they, you know, are developing a relationship, which I kind of buy, they're constantly checking in with their agents and their publicists to see if what they're doing with their personal lives is good for their careers. Um, And it comes back to haunt them in a really, really beautiful, heartbreaking scene where she's at his funeral. And it's, it's clear that she's no longer a person. You know, she was became the star that she always wanted to be. And she's just a celebrity that people want to take a photo of. They want to see her face better as she's mourning and crying and someone even rips the veil off of her. You know, they just want her to look at the camera because they own her now. And and that really harsh contrast is, is you know, kind of the heart of the story and, and beautiful, really. You know, I love the movie does finally come around and focuses on his issues with alcohol. Uh, although it feels like, the, like her story, sadly, is kind of moot by that point and is just there to support him. You know, story-wise, it's nice to tie her highest high of getting an Oscar in with his lowest low, public's embarrassment. Uh, But at the same time, it feels like the story shifts over to him in a way that is a bit off-putting, I think. You know, but it's interesting how this film gets into the gritty underbelly. Uh, I think, I love that it's revealed when, after he's dead, that the first, you know, thing we see after we see him walking off into the ocean uh, that the reveal of his death is through the publicist who says something like the first drink of water he's had in 20 years and he had it by accident 
You know, they're mocking him even in his death. You know, I actually kind of enjoy the cruelty that this film shows and how it handles the show business. And again, I think that must have been pretty interesting for the time that it came out. You know? So, I like this movie quite a bit, you know, and I'm really excited to watch the other versions. Uh, I like the tragedy of the ending, though I hate that she considers giving up her career for him. And I hate that the film ends with her correcting them and saying that she's not Vicky Lester, she's Mrs. Norman Maine. You know, I feel like a stronger ending would have been for her giving her original real name before she changed it for Hollywood and saying that she's Edith, I can't remember what her last name was, as opposed to Mrs. Norman Maine, just showing that she's her own woman and her own person. Uh, I realize that's a bit presumptuous for 1937, uh, and maybe I'll get that in one of the remakes. That would be really, really nice. Uh, so yeah, overall, I really dug this, and I'm super excited to watch uh, the next iteration of this, which is the 1954 version, directed by George Cukor, and starring Judy Garland and James Mason. The night is bitter, the stars have lost their glitter, the winds grow colder, suddenly you're older, and all because of the man that got away. All right, so I just finished watching the 1954 version. Oh man, I can see why this this version of this this story is probably the most celebrated um, so far that I think I'm aware of. I love the imagery of starting with a light burning out. It's a really beautiful foreshadowing. I think the one benefit that the audience comes in with in this version of the story is they they probably know that they're getting a tragic ending from the outset uh, just because of the, the original. And so, you know, uh, George Cukor is able to put in that foreshadowing without it kind of ruining the ending. It's almost inevitable. You know, it's like walking into a movie like Titanic where, you know, you're pretty sure you get a sense of that that thing's going to hit a rock by the end. So this version, we start meeting Norman as opposed to Ethel first. Uh, we get his drunken hijinks in the midst of a big Hollywood bash, setting up how big of a star he is. We don't start with her as the naive out-of-towner with dreams of being a star. We just get a glimpse of our leading lady, actually. She's observing Norman from a distance. And I like that they've started her all in already in Hollywood, already making a go of it. She's on stage performing. I like this version. She's been plugging away for some time and moving up on her own. Better than the original where he just plucks her out of nothing. And that's all due to her for what he's done that, and that she hasn't built anything. You know, by the time we, we meet her here, she's got him with this big band. She's on the cusp of kind of this one version of what her life could become. And, uh, and I really like that that's, that's where this story starts with her. I like the first sequence with Norman where we get all of his shades. We get, we get to see the person that the audience loves, the charming rogue. And we get to see his dark and destructive side. And it's all within a few seconds, really. It's really such a strong, interesting opening for this character that we get all the shades of him and really get the complexities that is Norman Maine. I love the, the line <laughs> when he's drunk talking to the PR guy. When he says, you're not such a bad guy. Why do you disgust me? Why do I hate you so? It's such a beautiful setup to their relationship, which is so complicated. You know, it's similar to the relationship between Norman and the PR guy in the original. And I love that at the end, there's this great little beat where the the studio head suggests that the PR guy never really got to know the real Norman, even though he's been dealing with his shit for for decades. 
the meet cute between Esther and Norman on the stage is is pretty great, uh, as opposed to you know her being a waitress in the original and him going into the kitchen. It's it's really lovely that they're both on stage in their element and and meet as performers, and she kind of saves him on stage. I love the visual of her playing with the band after hours and him him coming in and finding her. And I love how later Norman references it when she's nervous about her screen test. It's a, it's a really vital image to who she is and what he loves about her. I like that she helps him and he recognizes her talent. And the first one felt like he was giving her a shot because he was into her only. And here uh, he becomes into her because of who she is and, and what she's capable of and her talent. You know, He tells her not to settle for the little dream to go on to the big one. This that scene, you know, hits so hard for me um, as as someone who works in this industry, and I'm sure it is home for a lot of a lot of people in this industry. You know, it's so easy to keep doing what you're doing as an artist once you figure out something and it becomes easy, and it's terrifying when that next step just appears in front of you and there's a risk involved in you you taking it. And it's a leap of faith because it really usually means leaving someone else, something else behind, something that's comforting, something that is easy to stay on the path you are. There's some assurance in it. There's safety. There's security. But you can't ignore a voice that tells you that you're more talented than you, you're letting yourself be at the moment. And I think that fear and, and that scene really captures that in a, really, in a way that I haven't seen before that talks about that, that felt really, really uh, personal to me as a as a, a person who creates and works in this industry. Uh, James Mason does such an amazing job in the, in the first you know sequence and act of this film letting us know very quickly everything we need to know about Norman Maine, who he is. I mean the storytelling is very efficient. George Cooker is, is does a tremendous job in this regard. The sequence cutting back and forth from photos to the film is bizarre for me. I just really don't get it. It feels like we're yaddy eyeing past the screen test, although we're not really either. The effect is really interesting, but it feels like something that should have been set up from the beginning and established early on and carried throughout the film. Instead, it just disappears and never really returns. And I, this is something I'm definitely going to look into following uh, this recording because I'm just curious the concept behind it. Um, because I think there's a great idea behind it with George Cooker, but for me, it's the least, uh, for me, it's the one, the thing that the film kind of strikes out and misses on is that sequence. I love that the studio tries to make her up as someone else. And then he just wipes it all off. He puts that cream on her face and just, you know, he tells her her face is just dandy as it is. It's a beautiful and touching scene because he is just legit all about her talent. And I mean, it's Judy Garland. She's adorable and gorgeous but she's maybe not a pinup you know she looks more like the average girl than than not then she's you know she's not veronica lake she's not one of those types and he doesn't give a shit you know he tells her that of course she's scared we're all scared um you know he tells her to keep the picture in mind of her and her band at 3 a.m and 3 a.m having fun and that's what he loved about her and that's what we love about her and i really love that imagery that he keeps coming back to you know, just like in the original, the PR guy tells... Oh, not the PR guy. I think it's the guy... Uh, uh, oh, it is the PR guy that tells her that we'll have a new name for her by the end of the week. You know, this is back in the days when you'd signed with a studio and they kind of owned you. Vicky Lester, she has the same name she was given in the original. I did prefer the scene in the original where we get to see how they, they come to her name, the mechanics, and how they decide. I love the scene where Norman brings over the studio head 
and keeps on trying to get him to listen to her in the background, forcing him to, you know, quote-unquote discover her. But I like that the studio head also figures out what's going on, but, but lets it happen anyway. So then we jump ahead to uh, the movie that she makes. You know, I love that her backstory essentially comes to us via this movie musical sequence halfway through here. It allows us to get a really stylized version of 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 what happened to her and how she came up and, and it's a really smart and creative way to do it uh, you know not that we necessarily really need it at this point in the film i think the audience has filled in a lot of the blanks but it's fun and it's entertaining and man that outfit she's in is phenomenal it's these striped plaid-esque pants with a coat and tails and a top hat it is an awesome look ladies if you're looking for a really cool you know, Halloween costume for this year. Take a look at her wardrobe in that scene. It's fucking badass. I love this turning point in the film. It comes, you know, right at the intermission. You know, he's kind of joking around about the shitty film that he made that everyone's, you know, gonna hate. And their their films are both premiering the same night. His is a bomb, and hers is the thing that makes her career. It's it's you know literally the beginning and the endings, and the the structure of it's just lovely. And the subsequent conversation where he tries to walk away from her, but she won't let him, admitting her feelings for him, it's effective in a way that we really buy the relationship more than we ever did in the original. And it really, it's, it's I mean, in that scene, he he, he kind of sets the seeds for the tragedy that's going to happen. He knows he, he, he can't handle this kind of stuff. Um, the one thing that, that I walk away from with this uh, is that the songs are kind of forgettable. They're lackluster. I certainly couldn't start humming one for you now. They, they feel a bit like wallpaper. So the one thing that I think is, is lacking in this, this musical, as it is, is just really catchy numbers. And I think that's the one, one of the missteps in this film as well. Uh, I love the scene of, of them recording their private conversation while the, the, the music's playing in the background, and we don't get to hear it until they do the playback for the crowd. Uh, of them talking about getting potentially getting married and they're mocking each other. It's such a beautiful moment. It's it's super original and romantic. And and I really, really just love the way it's handled. You know, I like the the callback echo scene from the original, the studio discussing the marriage and how it'll affect them. And I love the studio liking it because he thinks it's gonna help Norman. He knows Norman's in trouble. And I love that during the wedding it's the first time that she appears to hear his real name. I think it's the first time we hear it in the film, for sure. You know, and again, we get this thread of the of the, the PR guy and his point of view of the mar- being being married quietly and him not being able to do a big thing with the press and how it affects him and that side of the world. You know, he's been covering up the bad press for Norman for years, and this is his chance to give something back to the papers who have, you know, been kind enough to kill some of these stories. You know, but Norman doesn't give a shit. He's being he's being selfish. We get why the PR guy is upset. It makes sense. But we also get Norman's side of it, just wanting something personal and small between the two of them. It's a really beautiful scene that has a lot of layers to it. You know, and then they come back from the honeymoon, and it it really the 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 two different sides of the coin really start going. Vicky's career is going off. The visual of his poster coming down and hers going up. You know, Norman being fired by the studio because he's too much of a liability, is too expensive. I really love that scene where he's kind of getting comfortable as being the house husband. She comes home and reenacts her day at the studio. He's made her sandwiches that are too big for her mouth. She can't even bite into the damn things. It's an adorable scene where she reenacts her day. The visuals are great. There's that 
great little moment where the projector screen, she's dancing up against the light. You know, Cooker is pulling out all the stops here. And then, you know, it, it, it's, it's that scene that you, th- you think you see where their life could go, and it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden, that fucking door knocks, and the, the courier comes and calls him Mr. Lester, and he can't handle it. He knows the tides have turned. It's a defining moment in the film, and it's, it's the beginning of the end for him. He goes and gets his drink. And then, you know, and then we're at that, that iconic scene that's a throwback to the original with the Oscars. They don't tell us which Oscars it is, which was disappointing because the first one, it's the eighth Oscars. And so I was, I was hoping to know what year we were in here. I'm sure I could look it up, but, uh, but it, was, it was too bad that they didn't have the reference there. You know, we get the same beat of Normandy, Norman drunkenly interrupting her shining moment of winning the Oscar. But it feels so much more sad and pathetic in this version. We get the accidental smack, which which does feel more accidental here. This whole scene is just so wonderful and painful. Um, it's real tragic, and it just hits. It just hits so hard in such a great way. Uh, and then and then the downfall just comes, and she's scared to go home to him. You know, it's such a shift from just a few scenes earlier where she wants to take care of him. You know, he gave her her career with his faith and his love. I mean, yeah, it's not a great thing to hear. It's like you, you know that she's talented. I think the film does a good job of showing that. You know, the film really does make it true that he did give her her career. You know, but it's all because she was talented to begin with. And it's not just because he loved her and, and wanted to give her the career that she wanted. She deserves it. And the film does a really good way of balancing both of it, I think. You know, for the time of, the time of you know, the film takes place. And, you know, she just wants to give him a chance to try again because she's she's seen him at his best. She knows how good he can be. And it's this, this desperate thing where they're never both going to get what they want. You know, Norman overhearing that conversation, hearing and knowing that he can't come back, you know, it's not just his career, but who he is. You know, he's called the shell of what he once was, and it's not wrong. Judy Garland is phenomenal in this entire sequence here. You know, he won't give up because of everything she has for him. You know, he knows he's not worth it. It breaks his heart and it breaks him. And you know, the scene is a callback to that great scene where Norman makes the studio head discover her by listening to her. The scene where the star is born and now now they're listening to Vicky and the studio head and now it's now it's him listening to them and, and that's what kills his star. You know, it's a really beautiful bookending callback. I'm not sure that's the intent, but that's what I see it and I really loved it. And and that final scene when he comes out and tells her he's going to start swimming in the morning and he wants to hear her singing. It's beautiful and heartbreaking. We know where it's going. You know, the images of the, the water against the, the windows and, and all that kind of stuff. Seeing the waves washing over his robe, signaling, you know, taking over him. It's just the whole thing. It's just it's a beautiful, tragic, heartbreaking ending. And the industry comes alive and energizes itself with his death, you know, just wanting to use it to get a piece of her again. Although I love the studio head, how he's respectful of wanting to give her space and, and wanting to keep Norman Maine's plaque on the studio wall. He says as long as he's the head of the studio, that plaque will remain there. It's a nice moment. You know, the, the one downfall of the ending is Danny, her old friend from the from the band, comes in and basically explains the movie to her and us to get her to snap out of her funk. You know, it's heavy-handed, but I get it. It works well enough. It certainly gives us another great scene with Judy Garland. 
You know, overall, ultimately, this film is a vast improvement on the original and what it didn't work in that, particularly the ending and our emotional connection to what comes with it. The original ending doesn't land the way it wants us to. You know, this time when she tells the world that she's Mrs. Norman Maine, it doesn't feel like the sellout it did in the original. It actually kind of works, you know, mostly because of Dan- Danny's speech sets it up, but because we know how much he believed in her and she knows that it was his faith and love that was the luck that she needed for people to see in her what she was. And that he, he took a chance on her when a lot of other people did. You know, she still is as talented as she is and she still deserved it. But it does recognize his contribution. And that kind of works in this version the way it didn't work in the previous. You know, the film doesn't make it seem like she only exists because of Norman. It shows her talent. But amidst an industry that chews people up and doesn't give them a proper look at someone who doesn't fit into a box. You know, but Norman did. He saw it right down to her soul. And then, you know, that moment in 3 a.m. with just her and her band. You know, she had that special something. And that's why the end tribute lands in this version where the previous one made me groan and made the moment just feel like a sellout. You know, overall, this is a really lovely film. I can see why it's as celebrated as it is. It's, it's really, really great. If you haven't seen this version of A Star is Born, I pretty much just ruined everything about it for you. So sorry, but holy shit, it's great. Looking forward to the next one that's up, the 1976 version, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Right, a Star is Born, 1976 edition. This time we got Chris Christopherson and we have Barbara Streisand. And uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. It's an interesting process watching so many versions of the same story in such a short, short succession. You, know, you can't help start off by comparing how they do the major beats, the intros, the turning points, how they're going to meet. How will she be discovered? Where will the breakdown come? How does he die? Because he's got to die, right? That's like the biggest trope of this series. So maybe I'll start with that, you know, how they address all the major beats and and the changes and the things that are similar. You know, the first major update we have is in the medium with Norman being a musician, similar to the modern remake, the the new version. And again, you know, starting the story with Norman, not with uh, Esther, as we have it here. Uh, Huge auditorium and screaming fans. Those scenes are awesome. Like the amount of extras they have, it's bonkers. It's great. You know, we get... Just a smidgen of information. Norman's two hours late. Quick coke bump, chug a whiskey, and then he's on stage. It's really strong and efficient storytelling. We know everything we need to know, and yet this is an entirely different Norman Maine. In fact, it's not even that anymore. Now it's John Norman Howard. Esther's intro, which is Barbara Streisand, isn't really overly remarkable until she puts the microphone in, in John's face to mock him for ruining her act. I like that meet cute a lot, actually, because instead of her saving him the way she does in the previous versions, it shows the strength of her character not taking any shit from him. And that's kind of the the bottom line for her in general. is like she will not take shit. Uh, It's a really far more modern approach than we've had in the past. And I think that's part of why he falls for her so quickly is because he's surrounded by people that just praise him and love him and do whatever the hell he wants. And she's not going to put up with it. I think that's great. I love that she doesn't let him into her apartment. She says, come back for breakfast. And uh, and then he does, and he brings pizza because he knows that she was fucking with him too and that she can't actually cook. It's just, 
we set off their 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 love story and, and their relationship in such a, a great strong way. Um, and, and I like that it takes time for the relationship to get intimate. I like that they don't just start sleeping with each other right away. I like the callback to the fishing metaphor when he describes watching her sing. Uh, I, th- I think that was just in the 1954 version. I don't think that was in the original. Um, I love that little beat when he's standing on stage and he asks if she's a figment of her imagination or if he's one of hers or vice versa, whatever that is. Um, and I love that there's this, these those shots of this huge stadium full of people and he's just looking at her. It's such a beautiful. It just says all we need to know that, like from the moment he meets her, it's all about her. Even though he does leave her there uh, after he becomes an asshole and does the motorcycle accident and crashes and shows how much of a, a, a train wreck this guy is. I like that. There's also this uh, background performer in the background makes a, an offhanded comment about how that's the third time he's done that motorcycle stunt. I had to th- think that the only the reason he's into her is because she's so down to earth and grounded. Because he falls for her hard and fast, and we don't really get a sense of why. Um, so, you know, part of it is us telegraphing our own affection for Barbara Streisand, I think, to some degree. Or just because we know we're supposed to believe that he falls for her so quickly. That said, I will play devil's advocate and say that by and large, you know, the biggest issue with this film for me is that it, it often feels like we're just hitting the posts of the story beats that we all know. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's natural or organic, and that you know, the things aren't necessarily justified or earned the way that they should be. You know, one big change one big change that I really like a lot is how he doesn't really know what to do with himself as a musician. He's bored and he's kind of done. Uh, but she ignites the spark and he almost knowingly just gives up his own career to focus on hers because he knows how good her songs are, how talented she is. You know, he works on her songs with his band. He brings her out on the stage, then he walks off. It's not an accident. It's not like... He's watching himself decline and, and, and watching her go up. He's, he's doing it because he wants to. Uh, and it's not like he's gifting it to her. He's just recognizing the talent she has and that she deserves the spotlight more than he does. You know, it's an it's, it's a, a argument of passion. Uh, and to be fair, it makes sense. I mean, the one downside to this is that Chris Christopherson, his singing is not amazing. I, it, the one thing, I, I like him as a performer. I like him in the role. But I also don't think that uh, he pl- he sells the rock star as an on stage as much as uh, he sells the the lifestyle version parts of the story. I like that she doesn't have to change her name in the film. A reporter even asks her, and she mocks the idea of it. So we get to play with that trope. You know, I I love that she just gets to be who she is the entire movie. Um, you know, to the point where he writes her name in, in spray paint on the wall of his mansion and stays there the whole time. And she even, like, pokes at it. She's like, how many names have you painted around this house? And he says, just one. And I believe him. You know, I, I want to believe him anyway. Uh, again, we get to the part in the movie where they're supposed to get married, and she proposes to him. It feels out of, out of nowhere. I don't buy at that point that there are people that feel the need to get married or want to get married, or, or that that's something that she needs to do or values. It, it feels pretty forced. You know, I like some moments around it. I like that she says she never thought she'd get married again, that he'd be lucky to have her. Uh, I like that she doesn't make him promise to give up drinking like they do in other versions of the story. In fact, they never really make an issue of his substance abuse at all. You know, he just lightens up naturally on his own because he's so invested in her and what's going on. And I think that's a really fr- refreshing angle to the story as well. I mean, the, the only real time they bring it up is she asks if he's an alcoholic, and he says probably. 
I like that when they do in the marriage vows, um, they don't want to say obey because it's the dawn of a new century. And he says, we'll say cherish because it's nicer. I love the sequence when they actually literally build their home and ranch together. Uh, the, the one beat that kills me, it's, it's really on the nose. You know, she says, if you ever die, I'll kill you. And then he promises not to die. But it's like, come on, people. You know, anyone going into this movie knows how this movie is going to end. <laughs> you know, it just feels a bit silly to have beats like that in there. Because you know that you're just setting up tragedy at that point. It feels a bit, a bit of a trope. Uh, and, and as does like the breakdown of the relationship, I, I have a hard time buying it. Like, like we're not really getting the sense that, you know, they're having money problems. She's doing just fine. They're sharing everything. You know, I don't buy that. He's really that jealous. He didn't really seem to care about his career, you know? Um, and I don't, and it feels like he's gotten all that bad stuff out of his system too. You know, the destructive nature of him, you know, I don't, it doesn't feel quite earned there. You know, I think I thought, while they were showing the montage of her career rise and they could have showed, you know, his more destructive tendencies and his je- what jealousy or whatever it was, but I never felt like he was jealous. I felt like he genuinely loved, loved her, you know, you know, the, the way they try to make it do it is his, he shows up to see his, his road manager, I think Gary Busey's character, uh, and who just automatically puts Coke up his nose the moment he sees him always, uh, and, and he finds out that his band's moved on without him, and then he lies about working with a new group of people anyway. Uh, but he's heard about that. And then there's this beautiful sequence we get right after that where he's trying to write a song and the phone keeps on ringing, and I really, really love that. Um, and I thought they could have played that up more. I just feel like that that, that scene is, is trying to do a lot of heavy lifting uh, where they could have came up with some moments around that to really try to sell his downward spiral at the beginning of it. That's so crucial to the story. I do like that they upgrade it from the Oscars to the Grammys. I mean, that's what else are you going to do? They're doing music now. Uh, I don't buy the scene in this version where he shows up at the award show and and makes a scene there and embarrasses her. It just doesn't make sense here. You know, he he cared about her career. You know, I just that's that that's the part. It's the second half of this movie where you just start to feel like they're just trying to hit all these beats. Um, that, that, that the film is known for, the, the story is known for, and I just don't buy it. They really skip over the part where the relationship goes bad in this section, and, and we're just told a lot of stuff as opposed to experiencing stuff. You know, Eli, she, she, it gets to a point where he sleeps with this journalist, and why? I mean, I like the idea of it, that he cheats on her, but it just doesn't make a sense. It seems laughable. The journalist herself starts to interview... <laughs> Esther, while she's still in bed with her husband, not realizing this is not an okay thing to do. You know, I don't get why he's trying to destroy their relationship and why he's being so destructive. It just, that, that part feels very forced. You know, he he does say, I tried to tell you it's not good with me, and then she insists that it was good. I do like the little moment where they have the reunion, and she keeps on saying, I hate you, and I hate you, while she's kissing him, and she's biting his lip angrily. And that sequence is really nice and lovely. And, and watching it, it's funny, I was surprised that they had a reunion. I was like, maybe they're just going to break up, as opposed to him dying here. Uh, but of course, they need to have a reunion. She needs to forgive him, because the movie needs to have a tragic ending. And I feel like that's what it's doing. I don't feel like it's earned. I feel like it's just happening. I love the moment where he says he loves how she gives him shit, because it sounds like she knows who she is. And then she says, I'm Esther Hoffman, I'm Esther Hoffman Howard, 
and says, yeah, that's right. And don't you ever forget it. And, you know, I like that she incorporates her name into his as opposed to saying, I'm, you know, Mrs. John Norman Howard or whatever. You know, I like that she is her own woman. And that's that's kind of what I said back about the first movie. I, I, I wanted that to come into the series. So I really like how that worked. And then we get that moment in the morning, the next morning, where they they have their "I love yous," and we just know. I mean, the movies, the movie, the ending is killing me at this point because it's just we know, we know what's gonna happen. We know he's going off to die, and however he's gonna die. I like the eight track in the car. I like that they have that, uh, and he starts driving, driving recklessly. And for what reason? You know, they they put so much effort into making this car accident feel visceral, but it feels random and pointless. The other films gave his death meaning. You know, we can still believe that he chose this and he did this on purpose, but to what end? So that she wouldn't make him be part of her tour because he knew he'd drag her down? It's not clear that that's what's going on and it kills the meaning from the ending compared to the others. His death feels pointless and it feels like it's just there because it's supposed to be there. And it's it, it hurts the ending of this film. I love that she finds his recording that he made, but then that scene and her monologue where she's getting mad at it or him or her, it's not really clear. It's not great. It's melodramatic and forced. And and what happens in the ending of this film is it just kind of abundantly becomes clear that this entire film was designed just to be a vanity project for Barbara Streisand. And sometimes that works. It works in the first half when she's being charming and, and we get to see them becoming a couple. But then the second half, when it's just about her showing off her chops and it just doesn't work, you know? I uh, I was reading up a little bit just before I recorded this about how the director and her did not get along at all. And apparently he took out an ad prior to the film's release talking about what a nightmare it was to make the film with her. And I'm, I'm, I got to look that up because that sounds like a fascinating read. And what a ballsy move to, uh, to do to someone like Barbara Streisand. Uh, it's not okay to do something like that. That's pretty shitty. Uh, but that said, when you watch the closing of this movie... And that shot, that medium shot, of just her singing for like five minutes, it feels like. It just goes on possibly long, and it stays in that medium, and then we get a freeze frame, and the first thing we have is her executive producer credit. And it just solidifies the concept that this is a vanity project. Uh, I read up that apparently she, she really, really went after Elvis to play the Chris Christopherson role, and that would have been really fascinating because it would have added that layer of meta-ness to it especially at that point in, in, in his life. Um, but apparently he wanted top billing and probably more money than her, and so the deal didn't work out. But, man, that would been, I, would, I would love to watch that version of the movie where, where Elvis plays John Norman Howard. Uh, yeah, so I will say that probably of the three films that I've seen so far, this one's probably my least favorite of them all. I feel like the uh, we're being forced into a lot of these beats and that aren't falling naturally. So, yeah. But uh, I look forward to diving into the final uh, just-released version of A Star is Born. In the Around 40 years, this is the longest stretch between remakes. There's 20 years between both the second and the third, with this being a story told 80 years later, it's still being told. That's pretty amazing. 
how timeless the story is, uh, and how strict they keep to the to the format and it being different. I'm really I really think back to the Twitter comment that made me want to rewatch all these movies from Zoe Kazan that I mentioned off the top of this this episode. And it, it's really interesting just how regimented each version of the story sticks to the key moments of, of it. How it's like beholden to it like it's gospel. And I wonder how this plays, this new version in particular, plays to somebody who doesn't know all the beats and and if it, if it feels organic and flows. I think it does. I think um, this version's really wonderful. So anyway, I realize what I'm about to talk about is, is a very, very new release of a film that has literally just come out. So if you want to avoid spoilers for the 2018 version of A Star is Born, stop this episode right now, go check out the film, and then come back and press play again, because I'm not going to hold back. All the other films have been out for at least 40 years, so I don't feel bad. You've had time to check those out. So I will wait, press pause, come back. Welcome back. So first off, I love the dialogue at the end of the film with Sam Elliott talking about how music is just 12 notes played over and over again for all eternity and how it's really just about how each artist plays those notes and what they do with them. It's very meta, given this film is a remake of a remake of a remake. Um, and I love how aware of it is. I mean, what's really, really beautiful this film is that it has a lot of nods to other other films, not other films, uh, you know, the the other films uh, that this this has been inspired by, and it's almost like he's taking the best of all of them to, to craft this. You know, we 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 get that little um, beautiful moment of Lady Gaga humming "Somewhere with the Rainbow," which is a lovely nod to Judy Garland. Uh, we get to play with the eyebrow stuff, you know, the the scene where Judy Garland gets made up and then he wipes the makeup off. Um, and then, you know, Bradley Cooper here pulling the eyebrows off of Lady Gaga. And uh, and just there's a whole bunch of little beautiful things where, where he's kind of taking cues from the different movies and, and kind of made them his own here that I really, really like. I love that they bring family into the story. I love that she's got her father... As a running figure, uh, Sam Elliott, as his brother, as a running figure, is amazing. Um, if Sam Elliott does not get at least an Oscar nomination for his performance as Bobby in this film, I will be shocked. It's it's a career best performance for him, as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, maybe the biggest shock to me in this, but not really from seeing the trailers, is that Lady Gaga can act her ass off. She is so good in this film. She knows that Judy Garland haunts every frame of this film and and just plays into that. The music in this version is really, really great. It's the best it's been in any of the versions of the film. It, it, it's music that, I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be buying the soundtrack. I really, really enjoy it. Uh, and, and, and as good as Gaga is, I'm really impressed by Bradley Cooper's music abilities here. I know I've read somewhere where he spent a year and a half getting ready for this, practicing, learning how to play guitar as well. You know, I love the way this version of the film really makes them cohorts together. They they spark. You know, having her meet in a drag bar is a nice update on their meet cute. Um, and it's a nice nod to her past too. She started off playing in drag bars. 
I love that we don't have the moment of her saving him. They just connect over her talent, and they spend one of those magical evenings together. You know, I love that that it was her that was violent and destructive in the cop bar, and that he comes becomes super concerned about her hand because she plays piano and he wants to fix it up and shows her how. And he really knows how, which tells us a lot about him. This is not the first time he has put peas on a on a, on a hand that's just punched somebody. The scene with them in that parking lot, just exchanging ideas and music, is wonderful. And we get to watch him fall in love with her right in that moment, and we fall in love with her too, and fall in love with him and the idea of them. you know. And then when he brings her on stage, it's the equivalent of when Chris Christopherson writes Esther on the wall in the previous version, and Bobby lets him know, lets us know, and lets her know that that's not typical. You know, it's different in the in the Streisand Christopherson version. He brings her on stage and he walks off and lets her do her thing. But here they play together and it's it's all the better for it. Watching that sequence of them performing together on tour made me want to watch that tour, but we want to buy tickets and sit in there, sit in the audience and just and just watch a three hour performance of them playing together and being in love. You know, it felt magical. Although they were they were together as a team. And it really makes the second half of the movie work because we loved watching them together so much that when she starts doing her own thing, we sense the loss the way that Jack does. You know, we want them to keep making music together and we know that as happy as he is for her that she's doing well, that it breaks him inside because he'd finally found something that made him love music again. Um, and just like he doesn't, I don't like seeing her become this pop princess with, you know, the 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 dyed orange hair. I mean, I love that she mocks herself saying she doesn't want to be a fucking blonde. <laughs> uh, and there's a nice madness to that. But, you know, so when, when Jackson gets disappointed by her and her nominations and thinks that it's a lesser version of what she was originally doing with him, I don't disagree. You know, I think the movie makes an interesting point there. Uh, you know, I like the proposal in this version. It makes sense where it comes. I like that it's a solution and him saying, I hear you, when she says that she's not going to clean up his mess anymore. Uh, I thought that was a really, really beautiful moment, and I thought that really, really worked. The Grammy scene, you know, it's a, another, it's, again, it's that the Oscar scene where he typically shows up late um, as she's giving her speech and then embarrasses her by making it all about him. Uh, and you know what? They they do a really lovely twist on that in this version. You know, in this version, it's the first time we've really felt his pain. He's just come from playing this corporate gig, and then he shows up at the Grammys. They want him to do this Roy Orbison tribute, and then when he gets there, he finds out that he's just playing guitar. They don't want him singing. So we understand where he's coming from, why he's fucked up, why he's pissed off, and why he turns to alcohol and drugs there. And so by the time that... Um, Ali wins wins the Grammy for Best New Artist, he just wanders up on stage with her because he's so fucked up. He doesn't do it to, to piss her off or try to pull focus on purpose. He ends up pulling focus because he's blitzed out of his mind and they make a, a terrible, embarrassing public moment. But he doesn't do it out of this kind of selfishness that happens in the other in the other movies. It's just embarrassing in a different way and it works really, really well here. I do have a hard time, though, buying that they have to go into this damage control that almost destroyed her career afterwards. Um, I mean, I would have liked to see them grappling with that if, if that was the case. It would have been interesting. 
I think that the speech her jerk of a manager gives him uh, feels a bit over the top, and I wish he would have called him on that. I I love their big fight scene. Um, I think it's perfectly written in that both of them are 100% in the right and in the wrong. Neither of them is being an ass just to prop the other up. It, you know, It's equal in both ways, and it's a scene that feels like it has some danger in it, and I really, really love that. What really, really works in this version is how connected we are to Jack because he's not just an asshole fuck-up who doesn't care. He's not swearing at his fans or showing up late to concerts or playing any crazy stunts. He's, he's legitimately talented, and he actually cares what he does. In fact, I'd argue that the only time he feels comfortable and safe is when he's on stage, and he doesn't know how to do the rest of his life. You know, So he just wants to be on stage, where you kind of feel like the other version of this character, the guy just doesn't know what he wants to do, and, he, and he's not comfortable doing anything. You know, he's Bradley Cooper plays this character so sweet and gentle and caring. And the one complaint I have is that I would have liked to have seen that transition beat between his fame and then having to do a corporate gig, you know, and what, what happened there that made that shift. Um, you know, we missed why that was happening. Was it directly related to Ali no longer playing with them? You know, I don't know. And then we get to, you know, the the ever-present suicide you know, and it, and it works. It makes sense. They they really they really telegraph it when he tells that story while he's in rehab about when he tried to kill himself when he was I think it was thirteen. He said, but it's also the first time in any of these films where he blatantly kills himself. In each of the other versions, you could rule as an accident. We know it's not. We know better. You know, he he walks off into the water and drowns. He gets into the car accident. Uh, and and they and they nod to that. He starts driving out, and you're like, oh, it's going to be the car accident that it was like in the last version. You see the motorcycle, and you remember the comments she made about never getting on the motorcycle when he's had a drink or drugs. Um, but then, no, he just goes, he just hangs himself. And, and like I said, it's the first time it's been blatantly 100% suicide that he wants everyone else to know it's suicide. And... You know, the moment kind of works. You know, we know that he believes he can never really clean up his act. You know, it, it's shitty that it feels like it's coming off the manager telling him that. Um, but he does, it feels like the second half of the movie, he's just getting ready for suicide throughout to some extent. You know, he has to say goodbye to the people he loves. He tells his brother that he's the one he really idolized when he was younger. He gives Charlie the dog a big, beautiful steak, and he leaves the song for Allie. I also love that they they do um, the thing they did in the last one where Allie combines her name and his name. And Allie Main is a hell of a fucking name. You know, I like that a lot. I love, 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 love the ending. I love her performing that song that he wrote and then cutting back to them as he's just singing it to her for the first time, right in the middle of like the most powerful moment as the audience is building, we just cut to the small version of it. And the simplicity and the beauty of that really, really, really got to me. So how do I rank these four films? You know, starting at number four, I think the weakest one has to be the Streisand, Chris Christopherson one. Um, and I think most people know that. It, it's kind of considered not a great film. I don't hate it, but it's easily the weakest of the group because of how much it feels like it's just a vehicle for Streisand alone and how it feels like the beats are just there because they have to be. 
And third place is probably the original with Janet Grainer and Frederick Marsh, just because uh, it's still good. I still like it, um, but it, it's the original, and uh, and it, it does a lot of the heavy lifting, and it, and it creates this amazing template for all these stories to come. And it, and it does feel like a film that's ahead of its time. So initially, halfway through watching uh, this latest version, the 2018 Lady Gaga version, uh, I was thinking that the, the Garland-Gaga versions might end up being tied for me as my favorite. But the more I went through, the more I couldn't help but wonder if if this, the, the newest version, isn't the best version of the film. It, it feels impossible to compare them all, really. The newest one should feel the most fresh and the most interesting. It should be the best. It's just a surprise that it is, because often that doesn't happen as you remake movies. But this one, you know, it, it, it connects at each moment. There's nothing I watch that pulls me out of it. I love the relationship. You know, I've liked the relationship in a lot of these, but the one in this one just particularly strikes a chord, and I could have watched this movie for forever. The performances are phenomenal across the board. And, and like I said, I, I know we're probably going to get a nomination for Gaga, for Best Original Songs, for all the things. But man, Sam Elliott, he deserves it. <laughs> he deserves it. And that's that. That's my, my final thoughts on this. Thanks for, thanks for sticking around. Um, if you've missed any of these versions of the films, you know, check them out. Thanks for sticking around and listening to me discover every version of A Star is Born. Another reminder that if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter at Lon Jeremy and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there or an Apple podcast or wherever it is you listen to us. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.